Hey, welcome to the Woodbury Church of Christ Sermon Audio. If you want to know more about our church family, you can check us out online at woodburychurch.org or go to our YouTube page at Woodbury Church of Christ. We're excited that you're here and we hope you enjoy the sermon today. So Christmas Day is right around the corner. For some of us, it's going to be time to start shopping here pretty soon, maybe get those Christmas cards written and and sent off. I know. Maybe I'm going to start looking for airline tickets to to go visit family. I don't know. We'll see. According to a recent poll, 52% of Americans love Christmas a lot. But here's what's interesting. That means 48% are kind of on the fence about it. And I have a theory. I have a theory as to why the 48% are that way. It's a little like eating a bowl of frosting where you get a few bites in and it's just a little sickly sweet, you know what I mean? And I think for some people, Christmas is a little bit like that. It's, it's, they love it, but it's a lot. It's like a lot of frosting and not enough cake, which is why they probably protest to the decorations going up at the retail places in September. It's like, it's too much. I can handle some of it, but I don't know if I can handle six months of it. This series that we're in is a Christmas series for the 48%. Now, this doesn't mean that the 52% aren't welcome, but it's sort of for those of you that are like, I like Christmas, but maybe in small doses, or I like Christmas from December 1st to December 25th, and that's kind of all I can handle. So this is Christmas, a Christmas series for the rest of us. It's a reclamation project and trying to take back some of those traditional, typical Christmas verses that spring to mind all these wonderful Christmas associations, but present the reality of those verses. So this week, we're going we're gonna to talk about Jesus' uncle just for a minute. <laughs> He's not a character that usually gets... Um, much attention in the Christmas story. In fact, if we were doing like a live nativity, you know, with all the kids, Jesus' uncle would be one of those non-speaking roles that you would give to the kid that you didn't want to mess anything up, kind of off in the corner. But he's an important part of the story. And, and I just wanted to start the service with this because I, I've had this conviction this week that in the truth that we're going to talk about today, there's a powerful reality that needs to sink deep into our lives And it all starts with Jesus' uncle, Zechariah. Luke chapter 1, verse 72. Luke chapter 1, verse 72. Remember, an angel had come to him and said, hey, good news, buddy. You're going to have a son. And he's like, prove it to me. And the angel said, you're talking to an angel. That's how I'm going to prove it to you. And from now until when the baby's born, you're not going to be able to speak. The baby's born. And the first thing that Zechariah does is he recites poetry, an original poem that he wrote. Wives, don't you wish all your husbands would write an original poem at the birth of your child? And so this was part of his poem. There's a, it's longer here, but I wanted to draw your attention to just a couple verses within it. Verse 72 and 73, where he says, to show mercy to our ancestors. This is what God is doing, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. Verse 73, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. So Zechariah is looking at the arrival of his boy, a precursor to Jesus, and he's seeing God keep his promise, an ancient promise that he had made to Abraham. How do you know if someone is trustworthy? How do you know if someone is trustworthy? Let's play a little, uh, let's play a little game. I'm going to have two examples, and the game we're going to play is, is this a scam or not? Scam or not? So number one, you receive an unsolicited email. The email has no subject line. 
It has no information telling you what this email is about. And in the body of the email, there's no information save a single link that you could click on. Now, the one piece of contextual information that might be helpful for you is to know that this came from Travis Edwards' email address. Travis Edwards is the tall guy. He's sitting right here, glasses, fixes things, and always is willing to help people out. That email purportedly coming from Travis Edwards that only includes a link, is that a scam or is it not? You are correct, it is not a scam. Travis was doing his very best to make it look sketchy, but it was not a scam. <laughs> Turns out that was a video that Travis wanted to share and I enjoyed watching it. Thank you, I appreciate you for sharing that. It was not a scam, although it very much looks like a scam. The next thing I wanna show you, I received this this week. Next thing, um, this is from a text number that I don't have saved in my phone. <laughs> Evelyn invited us to a party on the yacht. Do you have any plans for next week? So audience, is this a scam or is this not? You guys think it's a scam. Uh, incorrect. I'm going on a yacht this weekend <laughs> with my good buddy. No, this is a scam. I didn't, I didn't respond. And we get so many of these, right? I mean, we get this all the time. So how do you know? How do you decide? We have all these tools that we use, but how do you decide if someone is trustworthy? I think most of us go with our gut, right? We look at somebody in the eye, kind of John Wayne style. Can I trust them? Do they have a firm handshake? Do they make good eye contact? Most of us probably go with our gut in some way, shape, or form because we think we're a good judge of character, right? And are we ever wrong about that? <laughs> yeah, all the time, right? One of our members here used to be a manager at a local Chick-fil-A. And they told me the story. This Chick-fil-A had all these nice touches in the store. And one of the things that they had were all these potted plants outside on their patio, outdoor seating area. And all the potted plants were zip tied to the, to the little railing. So you go outside and you have this lovely, wonderful chicken sandwich as you enjoy the outdoor weather. So this employee, uh, actually a manager, was telling me that one day they showed up to work and somebody had come along and cut all the zip ties and stolen all the potted plants. Now, I am no social psychologist, but if you were to give me two data points and ask me, can I trust a person? And those data points were, they really love Chick-fil-A and they really love potted plants. Can you trust this person? I would say, absolutely, yes, you can. Turns out you cannot. Chick-fil-A eaters and potted plant lovers are sketchy people, according to the other data point that I have. So today, when we think, of, when we think about how we, how we decide whether or not we trust somebody, we have online reviews, we, we do background checks for our kids' volunteers. But the question of trustworthy is tough because a lot of you, a lot of us have been ripped off or you've been let down or you've been disappointed by someone you believed, firmly believed you could trust. Someone you thought was for sure on your side, had your best interests at heart. You thought they had your back and it turns out they didn't. And it left you jaded and suspicious and skeptical. And it eventually made you face the world with that suspicion. And you've arranged your life in such a way to minimize the amount of vulnerability that you have and the trust you have to place in other people. A lot of us are wired that way because of the difficult things that have happened in our life because we thought we could trust somebody. We looked them in the eye. They had a firm handshake. They said they were on our side and they let us down. Now, if that's true for us, 
This question of trustworthiness has been true for a long time. And thousands of years ago, they didn't have Google reviews. They didn't have scam likely pop up on their cell phones to tell them who they could trust and who they couldn't. And their solution thousands of years ago was covenants. Covenants. They have all kinds of covenants, and some of them were really wild, how intricate they would get to, to ceremonially prove to one another. This endeavor, this business endeavor, this marriage, this agreement, this contract was solid and safe and secure, and they called them covenants. Let me give you a quick example. Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 18. Jeremiah 34, 18. This is God writing. He says, those who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the, the calf uh, they will cut in two and then walked between its pieces. Now you read that and you're like, whoa, <laughs> what? What is that? Well, he's describing a covenant ceremony that the people of Israel had gone through where you kill a three-year-old cow and you separate it into pieces. You create a little aisle and then you and your partner, your business partner, your person that you're making this covenant with, as you walk through it, you're saying, may it be done to me as it is to these animals if I fail to keep my end of the deal. It's a big promise to make. It's a lot of symbolism, as you can imagine. It meant, it meant the, the, the stakes were really high. The actual Hebrew verb, making a covenant, it's not make, and it's, it's unfortunate they translate it that way. The Hebrew verb there is literally cutting a covenant, because that's exactly what was happening. You were cutting this animal in two, and you were spreading it out, and you were cutting a covenant with one another. There's a lot of... Um, confusion and uncertainty about this, but there's some people who believe that's where we derived the phrase cut a deal from this ancient Hebrew pact practice of cutting a covenant. Now, this wasn't every covenant, obviously, but this was the big one. This was a promise, but it was a promise on steroids. It was across my heart, hope to die, signed in triple clit, notarized, swear on a stack of Bibles, pinky promise. Like it was all the things that you could do to try to show somebody that you're completely earnest. All right, hold on to that idea of covenant, and we're going to take a sharp right turn. I'm going to show you a picture of a cat coming up the stairs. Here's a picture of a cat coming up the stairs. Now, I am going to show you a picture of a cat descending the stairs. There it is. You see it? Now, how many of you are like, wait a second, hold on. That's the same picture. Yes. Is the cat ascending the stairs or is the cat descending the stairs? You have opinions. I actually don't want your opinions right now. That's fine. <laughs> Keep them to yourself. In fact, there is a right answer, but your brain has the ability to look at that image in two different ways, depending on what's going on in your mind. Let me show you one more, one more picture. This is a picture of a duck. This is a picture of a duck. Now here's a picture of a rabbit. Duck. Rabbit. That's weird how our brains can see both things, but our brains have to be primed to see each thing. We're going to look at a story about a covenant that does this to your brain. Depending on how you read it, you're going to see multiple things, both of which are true. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. Genesis 15, verse 1. This is a great story. I was doing a little research this week uh, trying to figure out, has this story ever been visually depicted? And there is one source I could find. It was a movie from 1966 called The Bible. And their goal was to make a movie 
about the Bible, and they only made it through Genesis chapter 22 because the Bible has a lot in it. And they actually had a visual depiction of the story we're about to read, and it's the only place that I could find it, and I thought about showing you a clip, and then I watched it and decided not to because it's kind of gruesome, and you'll see why as we get into this. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. This is God to Abram. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. Bible class kids, what promise had been made to Abram and Sarai prior to this? Yes, they had been promised a son. They were thinking they could trust God, but time had gone on and they were starting to get to the place where they were not sure they could trust God. They were a little uncertain. They were asking themselves the question, is God trustworthy? Abram, oh, I guess I don't get to talk to God all that often. God, I've been meaning to ask you a question. Look at verse two. But Abram said, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the only one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. Who's this guy? And Abram said, you have given me no child, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And I'm sure Eliezer was great. I'm sure he deserved it. I'm sure he was a wonderful assistant. I'm sure he helped Abram out a ton. But I, I sense a little pain in that verse. I sense Abram saying, God, you gave me a promise. You said I would have a child, and here we are years later, and I still don't have a child. God, can I trust you? Are you trustworthy? God, is this really going to happen for us? Verse 4, then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and he said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. At Thanksgiving, our family spent time with my wife's extended family, uh, and we were gathered in rural Wisconsin, and one of the sisters had rented this big Amish farmhouse that they had retrofitted with electricity, but it was designed for a big family, and we were all able to stay there. But you drive out into this countryside, and it is dark, 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 because you're driving past a bunch of Amish houses that don't have any lights or electricity out there. So we happened to get there a little bit before everybody one evening, and we didn't have the code to get in. So we got out of the car, and we were just sitting there, and somebody looked up, and they're like, wow, look at that. And you look up at the sky, and it looked something like this. Away from all the light pollution of the cities, it's just mind-boggling. And you just sit there looking up at the stars. And you can imagine God talking to Abram about 2000 BC, very little light pollution going on. And it must have been incredibly vivid. And God's like, hey, can you count these? Go ahead. And Abram's like, one, two, God, I don't know. This is going to take a while. Uh, three, four, and God's like, no, you can't count them. And that's how your offspring are going to be. I will keep my promise is what he's saying. I am trustworthy. Genesis 15, verse six, it says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram believed that Abram didn't do anything. He just said, you know what? Yes, I know this is true. It's been a while, but God, I know you're going to come through. And the authors of the New Testament looked at that, and they're like, wow, look at that guy. Man, that was amazing. He believed him. Incredible. That's such a good example for us. So in other words, Abram didn't roll his eyes. He didn't just think, okay, whatever, God. He just thought, okay, I, I trust God. Verse 7, he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land, to take possession of it. But Abram said, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? And God said, well, you're talking to God. No, he didn't say that. But the Lord said to him, this is interesting, 
Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Wait a second. Uh, What's going on here? We recognize this, right? We recognize this. God is about to cut a covenant with Abram. And he says, hey, go get some livestock. I wanted to do an actual cutting covenant, but I left my three-year-old heifer at home. And I was like, shoot, you'll have to use your imagination here, okay? Imagine these are pieces of a cow. And you've got Abram, and he's arranging these. He's setting all these down just like God has asked him to do. Abram's seen this covenant before. He knows what this looks like. Imagine the smell. It was bloody. Anybody looking at this, anybody who understands ancient Hebrew social ideas, they would understand, okay, Abram's got a covenant. Interesting. God wants to prove that he's trustworthy, so he's going to make a covenant with Abram. And he and Abram are going to walk down the bloody, gross pieces of cow and animal together. Verse 10, Abram brought him all these, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. And again, this scene would have been intense, right? Just would have been like, imagine that what's supposed to happen. Abram and God are supposed to walk down this aisle together, making this promise. May it be done to me if I don't keep my end of the covenant. Now, I have a question for you. Is this ceremony of trust, is it for God or is it for Abram? Does God need to know that Abram's going to keep his side of the deal? No. This is for Abram. This is so Abram feels like he can trust God. Now, verse 12, check this out. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. Wait a second. (laughs) That's not what's supposed to happen at a cutting covenant ceremony. It would be like the groom falling asleep, not on the day of the wedding, but during the ceremony, standing up in front of everybody where the groom is like, I just need to take a little snooze. I'll be, I'll be good to go in about 10 minutes. No, you can't. What? You can't fall asleep. That's not how this works. So what's happening here for us, and this is important for us, the text is taking a left turn. There's a signal to the reader like, hey, this isn't normal. Something abnormal is about to happen. By the way, interesting, deep sleep is almost always exclusively used in reference to God putting someone to sleep. So in the garden, when God took a rib from Adam, the same word, it's almost always used exclusively for God knocking someone out for whatever purpose. So it seems as if the text is telling us God has put Abram in a deep sleep. What? That's odd. So, all right, verse 17, it says, When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. You imagine some incense, some smoke, and it alone passes through the pieces. What's happening? Now, the picture is starting to coalesce a little bit. Like, I think I know what's happening. There's a lot of scholars who talk about this, but all of them agree that these symbols are the presence of God. God has put Abram to sleep, and then God passes through the pieces of the animals alone. What? Why, Why would he do that? Why would he do that? That's so strange. So let's recap. God tells Abram, I've got plans for you, buddy. Abram says, how can I be sure? And God says, go get a cow. And Abram cuts the cow into pieces, spreads it out. God puts Abram to sleep, and God alone passes through the covenant. What's going on here? What question is Abram asking of God? God, are you trustworthy? But that's not the right question. 
the right question is, Abram, are you trustworthy? Are you trustworthy to keep your end of the covenant? What's the answer to that question? Absolutely not. The very next story in Scripture is Abram sleeping with his wife's assistant in order to fulfill this promise he just asked God to convince him of. Can Abram keep this promise? No way. So if Abram's walking down the aisle of bloody carcasses, knowing that this is going to be done to me if I don't keep my end of the deal, what's going to happen to him in about 24 hours? He's going to have to be killed because he's not keeping his end of the deal. The very next story. I don't think it's a mistake that that's the very next story in it's for us. This is crazy. Now, again, you got to let this story coalesce a little bit and sink into your mind. God knows Abram can't keep his end of the deal. He puts him to sleep. And what is God saying by walking through this? He's saying, I will keep both ends of the covenant. When you fail, I will be the one that holds up your end of the deal. That's powerful. I will keep both ends of the deal for you. Like, oh, wait, hang on, hang on. What are you saying? Is the cat ascending the stairs or is it descending the stairs? Look at this verse in Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 54, verse 10. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed. Why? Because it all relies on me. It doesn't rely on you. And look at what 2 Timothy 2.13 says. If we are faithless, he, God, remains faithful for he cannot disown himself. He can't do it. Why? Because he's the one keeping both ends of the deal. Wait, what happens when Abram fails? Does God get killed? Does God get cut? Does God get harmed? Does he get split in two? What happens when humanity fails to keep their end of the deal? Luke chapter 22, verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Wait, why are you suffering, Jesus? For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. He said, take this, take this bread and break it, divide it among you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do you see when we take the Lord's Supper, the bread and the juice, it's about remembering that God is keeping both ends of the deal because we have been faithless. We have been untrue. We have failed. But God can't. He can't fail. Do you see that? He cannot fail. He can't give in. It's a covenant, and Jesus is keeping both sides. There are... um, so many Christmas concerts, and every single parent is videotaping their own child, you know, at the concert. And so all these, you know, kindergarten graduations and fifth grade bands, there's about 300 videos of every single one of them. There's just tons. And it's interesting because there's a whole category of YouTube video. Feel free to go look it up. I didn't bring any with me. But a whole category of YouTube video where kids are walking up onto the stage and they're looking around in the audience hoping to see their parents. And there's these ones where they can't quite catch them. There's this crowd of faces obscured by cell phones and they don't see them. And you can see the pain on their face, the confusion, the uncertainty. Did my 
dad not show up to watch me perform, to watch me sing? Did my mom not come to watch me? And these videos, all of them are the same way. They show the moment when the kid finally catches the parent's face and they light up and they get so excited. Zachariah has this little baby this little baby, and we wouldn't see this in the moment, but Zechariah, steeped in the Hebrew Bible, he sees this. And he's holding this little child, and he starts reciting this poem to God. And in this poem, he says, this baby, this baby is evidence that God remembered his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. Zechariah saw the little baby on the scene that was a precursor to the arrival of Jesus. Abram and this covenant was about 2,000 years prior to Zechariah living, which is interesting to me because we are about 2,000 years away from the arrival of Jesus. So all the questions, all the concerns, all the distance, all the years, it's been the same for Zechariah from Abram as it was for us from Jesus. It's been the same. So Yes, I think Zechariah was probably struggling with some of those questions. He said, oh, that's God keeping his covenant to a faithless people. So the question is, is, is are you trustworthy, God? I mean, for us, I, yeah, we're here on a Sunday morning, of course. Yeah, the answer is yes. But can I tell you something? This is a little more vulnerable. But there, it, there's a lot of times in my life where I, I struggle with, with questions like that, like, but I see other people. It seems like everything's going well in their life. Why isn't it going well in my life? And God, are you trustworthy? And I'll tell you what, for the most part, the only thing greater than those questions, the only thing louder than those questions is my conviction that he is trustworthy. The questions don't go away, but the answer is louder than the questions. Now, some of you are like, okay, Patrick, that's great. We sing about the goodness of God. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen. I haven't seen the goodness of God. Well, and this is nice for Zechariah. He got to see a miracle. He got to talk to an angel. That's wonderful. That was nice for Abram. He got to have that whole Genesis 15 ceremony thing. But I haven't seen it. Why does it seem so easy for some people to believe and to trust and to live their lives with that assurance and that affirmation? And for some of us, it's so difficult. Why, why is that? I've never had a vision. I've never had God audibly speak to me. I've never had any of that happen. My most vivid experience of the grace of God, of the love of God, of the truth of God has been through God's people. My wife, for me, is a reminder of God's grace. Not some intangible experience that I can't relate or couldn't convince you that was true. A walking around human being is the reminder of God's goodness and God's grace. So let me say, if you're struggling with wondering, is God trustworthy? Is he true? Is he good? Is he real? Maybe you're looking in the wrong places. For me, many of you are the living proof of God's love. That's what you are. And so maybe you're looking for a vision, you're looking for a dream, you're looking for the supernatural, but maybe it's the person sitting next to you in the chair right here this morning that is a proof of God's blessing and God's goodness and his kindness. That's what it's been for me. Maybe God has surrounded you with 200 reasons in this room to believe that he is good and that he is true and that he is real. So let me wrap up by asking this question. 
What promises of God do you struggle believing? What promises? Promises of his goodness, promises of his security, promises of, of his affirmation for you, promises that he has a, has a future and a hope. What promises is it for you? You're like, man, other people seem to get it. I just, I don't, it's not for me. Do you believe that there's grace for your sin? Do you believe he will take care of you? Do you believe he will provide? I don't mean what promises have you projected on God. God doesn't keep promises he doesn't make. But what promises has God said, I will take care of you. I will be there for you. I will give you grace that you struggle keeping. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. They are yes in Christ. So Christmas, sure, Christmas is figgy pudding and its gifts and its lights and its snow and its fruitcake and its Christmas movies. But Christmas is God keeping his millennia old promises in our lives, sometimes through the people around us. 